I doubt you uh, went and searched Chinese democracy for anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did not search Chinese. Th- it, uh, for me, Guns N' Roses was from 1987 to 1993. It it ended with spaghetti incident. <laughs> <laughs> Chinese democracy does not exist in my world. <laughs> and what's what's funny too is that they have a greatest hits that came out in 2004 that actually sold six x plat. I don't see why they have a greatest hits album because they really only have three albums. They got Appetite and they got Usual Illusions one and two. Lies is not a full album. Just condensing it for the idiots. Something to buy at Christmas time. Welcome to the Echospire Song Destruct Podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design, and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements and evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's episode is Bohemian Rhapsody versus november rain and the theme is chapters acts and legs now i'm gonna have to explain what that means here because uh most people probably with a music background aren't familiar with storytelling devices which is where i'm pulling this from you know honestly i I believe that music borrows heavily from storytelling i think storytelling borrows heavily from music they're kind of one and the same so I'm going to be talking about chapters, acts, and legs. There's three acts. Typically, Star Wars is famous for having five or six acts because it's a long soap opera. The key word there being opera. Both of these songs are rock operas, and that's the reason why we have to get into talking acts. Now, a division of an act is a chapter, chapter like in a book. There might be three chapters in an act. There might be 50 chapters in an act. Legs, that's a division of chapters. So legs are just distinct melodies. Bohemian Rhapsody has many different types of melodies. In fact, I think it has 18 distinct melodies and different chord structures layered within the eight minutes of the song. So having said all of that, it's going to be quite an analytical episode, but we're going to stay pretty heavily fine-tuned into just deconstructing these songs, not the genre of operatic rock or art rock or whatever we want to call this genre that we're going to be in the middle of. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Howdy ho! Heidi ho to you too. So what does Bohemian Rhapsody November Rain mean to you right off the bat? I could see why you would pair them together with the rhapsodic nature of their structure. Is that a word, rhapsodic? It is not. <laughs> it is now. So the big outro in November Rain. The Layla ending. Yeah. And then I just noticed November Rain has a lot of parts. It's got the, what, the verse, pre-chorus, chorus, bridge, outro guitar solos that are almost their own parts. Side note, I, I remember watching sort of behind the scenes something or other with Mike Myers, where um, for people of our generation, Wayne's World, maybe our first real introduction to that song. I think at the time the studio was trying to talk him out of it and said, you know, just use something more current that we could sell mm-hmm. alongside this. And I think they even suggested like something like Guns N' Roses, you know. <laughs> Yeah. God bless him. Mike Myers said, no, this scene works 
with this specific song, that's it. That's the end of it. He wasn't budging on that. Yeah, I got a lot of data to go over, and it's going to tie in some Wayne's World. Let me go ahead and start with Bohemian Rhapsody. So it's a five-minute, 55-second song, even though I, I think I just referred to it as being eight minutes a second ago. It feels like an eight-minute song, but surprisingly, it's only five minutes and 55 seconds. The average pop song today with just a verse and a chorus and no middle eight can go five minutes and 55 seconds. Yet think of Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. It's an opera under six minutes. It came off the album Night at the Opera. It went gold originally in 1976. It became three times platinum by 2002. Freddie Mercury wrote this at the age, well, I shouldn't say he wrote it. It was released when he was age 29, which just to quickly uh, jump over the fence to November Rain, Axl Rose was 29 when November Rain was also released. So there's something about that magic age. We've long discussed the, the magic age of 26, 27 being kind of the Sgt. Pepper age where a lot of bands uh, had their best work. But Freddie Mercury and Axl Rose, I believe, did peak at the age of 29. Rocky Horror Picture Show. I've oftentimes looked at that movie and seen the lead character as being copycat of Freddie Mercury. Tim Curry is his name, the lead actor. But what's funny is, is that, and I just learned this, that Rocky Horror Picture Show came first. It came out in 1975. It was actually a popular play in 1973. Meatloaf was on that original cast. And I bring up Meatloaf because... He is a kind of a groundbreaker of this operatic rock genre as well. Even though he started working on Bad Out of Hell in 1973, it did not come out until 1977. And of course, Bohemian Rhapsody came out in 1976. And again, going back to Rocky Horror Picture Show, it predated at 1975. And that has, you know, the big opera uh, section. Let's do the time warp again. Now, there's going to be plenty of stuff actually upstream from this song. Bohemian Rhapsody was not breaking any new ground. It simply did it the best. But everything from Sgt. Pepper, having a day in the life, there's an influence there. Strawberry Fields, there's influence. Good Vibrations, Burt Bacharach music, The Abbey Road medley, Stairway to Heaven, 71, I believe, Dark Side of the Moon, Dream On, which was 1972 by Aerosmith. Ellen John had a few in there. So again, Bohemian Rhapsody, not breaking new ground in terms of making up rhapsodies or making up rock operas, but it did do it the best, the quintessential rock opera. A few other facts about Bohemian Rhapsody. It is credited with basically inventing the music video. MTV started in 1982, yet when you look at this music video, it's pretty highly edited and marketed as a music video. Me and you both know that music videos were actually created by the Beatles, and the 66, I believe, with like Rain and We Can Work It Out. Oh, I was going to say Strawberry Fields, but I forgot about Rain and all those. Well, keep in mind, as music videos go, they weren't highly edited. They were seen as more promotional videos for the song. Right. If you look at Bohemian Rhapsody, however, it's pretty highly edited when you think about how they're silhouetted for the intro, the ballad where it shows him on the piano. Big coincidence, that piano he's using is actually the same one from Hey Jude. Mm. And Hey Jude shares, I wouldn't call it a rock opera, but it's definitely in this genre of big ballad songs, as well as American Pie. And Hey Jude, American Pie, and I Would Do Anything for Love, Meatloaf song, they're all in this kind of special club of longest songs in history to make it to the top 10. Bohemian Rhapsody's music video is kind of accepted as being the real impetus for MTV being able to grow legs and a channel of music videos being able to come out in 1982. It's also been said that Freddie Mercury's vocal is the greatest rock vocal 
as voted by Rolling Stone readers on this song. It's also the most streamed song in 2018 from the 20th century. Ah. The funny thing is, is that as you get into this, you're like, oh, it's the most streamed song, but they have to qualify it from the 1900s, of course. Sure, yeah. Not (laughs) not beating Drake. Just to take it back to a big overarching theme for what this entire podcast is about, I think that we're living in a post-rock music world. Oh. I don't think it ever comes back. A hundred percent. Except as novelty acts. How much can a novelty act really repair the damage that's been done over the past 20 years. Well, I was just going to say, the whole image is lost its luster. Rock stars used to be mysterious. Right. Guns N' Roses was sort of the last stand, mm-hmm. since we're going to be talking about them. And that whole attitude, that whole ethos, which actually worked for them, I wouldn't take anything away from them. It actually seems pretty authentic with them. Mm-hmm. That would just be a joke now, uh, because it wouldn't be authentic, because people aren't like that anymore. And right. Technology's changed. Yeah. Slash and Axel, they were... The real deal. The real deal, and the last of them, I think. I mean, nobody's going to go listen to Slash's Snake Pit or whatever he's doing now. Nobody cares. That whole thing is lame. Mm-hmm. And I mean, <laughs> the last people that tried to do something like that was like the darkness. And it was like a, it was a parody of it. One thing I was going to say on this, that as I began to look at all these different ballads and I thought, when was the last time some operatic ballad was done? I think the last stand was Paranoid Android by Radiohead. I can't think of anything after 97 that attempts to do an operatic rock ballad can you not at any commercially successful level i'm sure a million people are doing them but there's just nobody we care about and again if it's not topping the charts it's not relevant anyways guess what your humble host here has a couple of rock operas in him but you're never going to hear them (laughs) (laughs) we all want to let me jump over the fence before i start to get into some of the details on bohemian rhapsody november rain uh was actually written in 1986 at least 86 because there's a demo you can hear it on youtube where axel rose is playing it this was before they even recorded appetite for destruction i should butt in there because i was wondering about the trajectory of guns and roses career you know the reason they stood out obviously from bands like uh, Poison and Warrant and Motley Crue, was there was just something more serious about their songwriting and vision and even intelligence? Was Axel the type of guy that envisioned having a career where they'd be making this giant double album and having strings and rock operas from the very beginning? I do believe that's the truth. Then he's a genius. I walked into Barnes & Noble's one day, not intending to stay there for more than 30 minutes, and I picked up Slash's autobiography, and I read it from cover to cover. I didn't even leave wow. Barnes Noble. It was weird. Like I got entranced. Guns N' Roses, for whatever reason, was like it for me. It wasn't just Guns N' Roses. There was also Metallica and there was a few others. But for some reason, Axel and Slash were like uh, almost mythic gods right. <laughs> in fifth grade. Well, and they took what, what nobody thought like could be top, like an Aerosmith type dynamic and just kind of took it to the next level. And they were younger than Aerosmith. Yeah. By the time we were in fifth grade, there were has-beens still with good music, but there were still has-beens sticking around for another leg of their life. Right. But Axel and Slash were like our Jim Morrisons. And I sometimes wish that Axel would have died in his youth because what he's become. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tweet him that you said that. In any case, back to 1986, there's a demo out there. Axel releases Appetite for Destruction in 1987 with his band. Guns N' Roses should almost be called Axel and the Roses because it is the Axel show. Despite the fact that all the members hold their own, and that's a good part about this band, similar to the Beatles, 
where each guy kind of has his own personality, which is rare. Even Rolling Stones doesn't really have it, despite lasting 50 years. They still have a revolving door on some of their lineup. And there's not too good of a story there with some of the, you know, the bassist, don't know that much about him, drummer, don't know much about him. With Guns N' Roses, I think that they did hold themselves out there as a um, kind of a motley crew of, uh, you know, chain smoking, chain belt wearing leatherheads. And it worked and it was authentic. Yeah. A lot of that stuff comes from the band Motorhead. Oh, yes. Kicked off a lot of things. Uh, but yeah. it all goes back to the Lizard King, Jim Morrison. Yeah, yeah. I don't disagree that, that every band member had at least a name. I mean, what does anybody really know about Izzy Stradlin? Izzy, Dizzy, and then the two different drummers. and Right. So they all kind of fade into the background a little bit. Uh, Duff, for some reason, stood out, but he did sing lead vocals. Well, so did Izzy. And, and they were horrible lead vocals, but we still love them. Yeah. <laughs> Duff, not a great singer, but it had personality. Personality goes a long way. All right. So 1991, Use Your Illusions comes out. And 1992, November Rain is actually issued as a single. Some of the interesting points here of how Guns N' Roses staged their career. Use Your Illusions was only their third album. Let me actually go into some of their history. Let's actually rewind to 1986. So from Slash's autobiography, I got that Axl Rose was always trying to create this career that went from rock music to kind of a Beatles-esque arc where they got into symphonies by second or third album, which is exactly how it went down. Early on, the band was against it because Duff was from the punk world, Slash was from heavy metal world, and they just didn't see the vision that Axel had in mind. And to Axel's credit, he executed it perfectly down to the epic videos for November Rain or Estranged. I mean, their tours, they played 176 shows in 1987 to 1988. That one tour, they only had two tours, by the way. Mm -hmm. So their first tour was 1987 to 1988, 176 shows. But they only play 12 songs. Think about that. It's like a 30-minute set. They're on, they're off, they're gone. Right. By 1991, they take on their second tour, which was ahead of Use Your Illusions. They actually hadn't finished the album because they had gotten hung up with this double album monstrosity. And they started the tour and were recording it you know, in between different tour dates, just trying to finish it up. But they played 194 shows between 91 and 93. This is a lot of shows. These guys toured incessantly. If you look at the, the schedule, they're in different cities separated by 300 miles overnight. Mm -hmm. Typically, you would see something like two or three days to, to one to get there, two to rest up, and then they played the third day kind of thing. They also fit in during that time, 26 additional shows for the Metallica GNR tour between July and October 1992. I actually had a ticket to that show at Lakeside Amphitheater or Lakeview Amphitheater, whatever they call it. Uh, I ended up not going at the last second. Oh, <laughs> it, it was the ultimate tour, man. Guns N' Roses and Metallica. But my brother told me the music was going to be so loud. It was going to make my ears bleed. And uh, I was impressionable at this time in my life. And I got scared and panicked and told my dad if we can't go it's going to be me and my dad so. <laughs> your brother didn't want to go i mean you know he was more into the alternative music scene yeah. by 1992 i think it crosses my mind every single day beyond it being a gnr metallica thing it's just like i'm never gonna let that happen again where i let fear overcome the opportunity <laughs> it was like inception biggest regret the one idea okay so going back into some of their their band history here appetite comes out in 1987 selling 18 times platinum Lies in 88, one year later, sold six times platinum. Illusions 
uh, both albums sold seven times platinum, so 14 times platinum if you combine them. And Spaghetti Incident was one times platinum, and you know they pretty much disbanded. Chinese Democracy did actually go one times platinum. They did not get me purchasing it. Sweet Child of Mine was their first number one. November Rain went number three. Patience went number four. Paradise City went number five. Welcome to the Jungle went number seven. Don't Cry went number 10. And You Could Be Mine went number 29. That's all their songs that made it kind of in the top 50. There's a 18-minute version of this song from 1986. So you can tell that Axel actually had to pull back some of his ambitions because he originally intended this song to be much bigger than an eight-minute, 57-second version. There was a million dollars spent on the video, which makes it the 25th most expensive music video ever. Mm. A strange, oddly, fifth most expensive video with a $5 million budget. That doesn't surprise me. It had like a big battleship. Exactly. Just a rent it for an hour was probably a million bucks. Right. The reason why I say it's odd is because November Rain was a much bigger song than Estranged in terms of a chart topper. Estranged didn't top the charts, and yet they still made a $5 million video, which tells me that was Axel's baby. And it is a very good song. I, I might like it better. Right. I do like it better. I think the guitar melodies Slash put on there were amazing. Yep. You know, I'm looking at the track listing of one and two. It could have just been one awesome album. I mean, I hate to be <laughs> the George Martin. <laughs> I hate to be George Martin trying to condense down the White Album, but it's not that they're throwaways because I like that it's varied. That's what's cool about it. Yeah, but there are some songs in here I just I don't need to hear. What's the top worst song for you on this album? Shotgun Blues. We don't need that. You know, <laughs> November Rain is also the first video on YouTube before 2006 to get a billion views. So November Rain has staying power. Yeah. This is not a song from 1992 that's been forgotten. People still listen to it. I was surprised to see the Spotify streams. I mean, they have something like 500 million streams on that on November Rain and Mm -hmm. maybe 700 on Sweet Child of Mine. Yeah. There's a lot of people that they never move past the Guns N' Roses era in their heads. They're still listening to it. Well, let me get over to Queen and analyze the song real quick. Here's Queen's history. They were around from 73 to 1991. That's when Freddie Mercury died. In 73, they released Queen. It went gold. 74, they released Queen 2. It didn't go gold. In 74, they also released Sheer Heart Attack, which did go gold. And then in 75, they released Night at the Opera, which went three times platinum off the back of Bohemian Rhapsody. 76, they did Day at the Races, and that went gold. 77, News of the World, four times platinum. That had songs like uh, The Champion on it and We Will Rock You, which kind of helped to elevate them to their biggest success, four times platinum. In 78, they released Jazz, which went platinum. In 80, they released The Game, which surprisingly went four times platinum. Because that had songs like Crazy Thing Called Love, which was kind of more outside the, their typical operatic genre, more crossover. And then Flash Gordon came out in 1980, did not go gold. 82, they released Hot Space, it went gold. 84, they released The Works, did not go gold. 86, they released Kind of Magic, it went gold. Miracle came out in 89, it did not go gold. Innuendo came out in 1991, it went gold. Made in Heaven came out in 95, it went gold. What I'm trying to illustrate here is that Queen was around for a long time. If you go and watch a video on YouTube, all those videos that show all the different best-selling artists you know, over the course of time, you'll see that 
Beatles are up there quite a long time, but Queen's up there, probably the the most consistently high ranked number one selling bands right. of the past 50 years. They're the tortoise, not the hare. Exactly right. They just stay and they stay and they stay. And the thing is, is that most people probably don't know beyond two or three Queen songs. They probably have legitimately 14 good songs that everyone knows, but they couldn't name them off the top of their head. Right. Having said all that, let's talk about the details, the song, the deconstruction. Can I ask you one question? So I think you said Night at the Opera went gold. It just seems like the type of song that wouldn't quite be appreciated enough when it first comes out. It went three times platinum by 2002. It's one of those albums that the sales got drug out for a long time. But originally, Night at the Opera did only go gold. Yeah, that's what I was going to think, because not just the album itself, but the song it just seems like something like a great piece of art that took a little time for people to realize how great it was. Like much smaller level, uh, Aerosmith's first album had Dream On, mm-hmm. and nobody nobody even batted an eye. They didn't care about Aerosmith until Walk This Way and all that came out, their third album, and then they rediscovered Dream On. Yep. And it's like, okay. It made more sense. I could see how Bohemian Rhapsody would be like, slip a little bit under the radar. Yeah. Like, We Will Rock You. That's where they really did break out. That was 77. That went four times platinum. And that's where people started to go, okay, this is accessible music. Let me look in the back and find Killer Queen and Bohemian Rhapsody and Fat Bottom Girls. Some other cool stuff about the charting of Bohemian Rhapsody. So it charted number nine in 1976 when it came out. In 92, on the back of Wayne's World, which went three times platinum in 1992, Wayne's World helped it get back to number two. That's like 17 years later or something. It gets to number two, a higher charting position than it did originally. And then in 2019, off the back of the Queen movie, it went to number 33. So it's had three distinct times that it's charted at this point, which makes it kind of unique. It's probably a very short list of songs that have three different times that it charted. Yeah. So talking about the song architecture of Bohemian Rhapsody, I brought up at the beginning that the theme of this show is Acts, chapters, legs. Bohemian Rhapsody, for as long as it is, it's still only three acts. It's still just a beginning, middle, and an end. But it has five chapters. Those five chapters are the intro, the acapella section, the ballad part, Mama Just Killed a Man, operatic passage, the hard rock section, and the fifth is the reflective coda. Nothing really matters, anyone can see. The number of legs is 18. There's actually five legs in the first chapter, three in the second, eight in the third, one leg in the fourth, and one leg in the fifth. Let me give you an idea of what these different legs are. So, is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. That's a leg. The chords of that are E minor, A, D, G. And I've transposed this so that it makes more sense. It's actually in the key of B flat, I think. E minor, A, D, G. Fairly simple box. And by the way, Freddie Mercury is not singing sixths, sevenths, ninths, or anything clever. He is singing thirds, fifths, and root notes, which is surprising. For instance, November Rain, Axel's singing all the weird stuff, sixths, sevenths, ninths. And he's not singing very many roots and thirds. So despite the fact that Bohemian Rhapsody is operatic and incredibly complex chords, he is not singing complex melodies in terms of the notes. Maybe sometimes there's an interchange between how complicated the chords are versus the melodies. Correct. uh, Polar opposites. So leg two is open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. That's E minor, G7, C. Leg three. 
I'm just a poor boy. I need no sympathy. That leg three is just A minor to D. Leg four is because I'm easy come, easy go, little high, little low. That's just G sharp, G, F sharp, G, going in a circle. Any way the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. That's the fifth leg. C, G, B flat diminished, D. By the way, that B flat diminished chord is awesome. Go learn a B flat diminished. You play that one chord, just like in Wayne's World where he plays the arpeggio. Yeah. And they say, no stairway. You play a B flat diminished, guy at the guitar store is going to come up to you and say, no Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, you just went real meta there. (laughs) So that's the end of the first chapter. Then you get into the second chapter. Mama just killed a man, but a gun against his head. Pulled my trigger, now he's dead. That's a leg. G, E minor, A minor, D. Simple ballad structure. Then we get to the second leg. But now I've gone and thrown it all away. That's A minor, G sharp, G, and then it falls onto F sharp. Now that chord, A minor, with an F sharp bass, is a very cool chord. If B flat diminished is the Bohemian Rhapsody chord, then A minor with an F sharp bass is the second Bohemian Rhapsody chord. After we're done with this uh, conversation, everybody, go back to your guitars. Here's your homework assignment. Play an A minor and put your thumb on the F sharp and tell me that's not Bohemian Rhapsody in a nutshell. The third leg is Mama, ooh, didn't mean to make you cry if I'm not back again this time tomorrow. That's C, G, A minor, D minor, G. Simple chord box ballad melody carry on carry on as if nothing really matters love that chord there yeah that's a cg a minor and then the chord is f minor so when he's going from a minor to f minor that double minor back and forth that's the as if nothing really matters now you you said we were transposed into what key the key changes in the first chapter the acapella it's e minor oh no no the the, the, the verse sorry the, the verse. verse gets to g well and then what chord is the minor there where nothing really matters so it goes from a minor to f minor then it ends up on c yeah 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 so so that's the thing i used to always think that that was the one time i ever saw a, a minor in that position uh, two half steps below the root and then you minor the chord And then later I was looking at Bohemian Rhapsody and realized, well, the whole verse in this scenario would be more likely in C. Therefore, it was a little more common to minor the four. Exactly. So it jumps up to C, changes key from G, which is what the verse is in. And at the end, carry on, carry on as if nothing really mattered. To get back to the verse, there's a key change back to G. And you can feel it. Right. Back to G. Right. That concludes the second chapter. The third chapter, the operatic session, which is an F sharp. The first leg is a day in the life with the staccato. Dun, 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 dun. I see a little silhouette of a man. Sounds an awful lot like woke up. Yeah, I think in your downstream, upstream world. Right. Yeah, that, that exists. You know it. So leg one is... I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the fandangos? With the chords going B, F sharp, F, F sharp, B. Leg two is thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me, which is A sharp, F, A, C sharp, F sharp. So he's kind of moving around in these circle of fifth patterns, uh, changing it up every once in a while. Galileo, 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 Galileo. This is leg three, four bars of that. Let me just go through uh, counting the different bars. So 
Like one is four bars, like two is two bars, like three is four bars, like four is seven bars, five is three bars, and leg six is eight bars. Everything we've discussed on this show, from time signature to counting measures to melody to changing keys to hiding key signatures, Freddie Mercury's taking it all and he's putting it into this giant cauldron, making a stew of opera rock. Do you have any insight into purpose behind any of these lyrics? Is he spewing nonsense? Originally, he started it out knowing what he wanted, but he didn't have the background of Greek mythology. So he had to go and do a bunch of research. And he did try to stitch something together that made some sense. So Scaramucci and Fandango and Galileo and Bismillah, they're not all in the same universe, if you will, but he's certainly borrowing from different mythologies and trying to construct this plot of evil coming after a young man and then him being delivered at the climax. To that end, yes, it means something. But keep in mind, they were having to bolt each one of these legs together in the studio. They were making it up as they went along. Freddie had some semblance of it, but he kind of got struck with some inspiration in the midst of it. And he said, hold on, give me five hours. Let me step away and get this thing done. This took three weeks to record and 180 overdubs. It was done using a 24-track machine, which means they had to bounce down eight tracks into one, then a seven tracks into another one, then six tracks into another one. The tape was actually falling apart. By the time they were done with it, that's a whole miracle end of itself, how they were able to accomplish this without Pro Tools, which would have made it very easy. I'll just jump to the hard rock section, the climax. Chords are G, C, G, B flat. So you think you can stone me and spit in my eye. Right there, he's got a three and a half bars. Oh, yeah. So the reason why it ends abruptly is because they don't go four bars. It's three and a half bars. Yeah, it works well. So you think you can love me and leave me to die? So the chords going on throughout this whole passage are G, C, F, D minor, G, D minor, G, C. Just got to get out. Just got to get right out of here. So all of that stuff is happening inside those chords. The chords aren't particularly interesting, but this section of the song certainly does provide this big open road for you know heavy power chords and this deliverance message. So you think you can stone me and spit in my eye. He's basically hearkening back to ancient language, stone, spit, eye. And he's attempting throughout this entire opera, he's attempting to kind of pull together these ginormous ideas of redemption, guilt, suffering, you know, everything that comes from the Bible, everything that comes from any ancient literature outlining all of the complexities of life. So Freddie Mercury is very much standing at the top of his game, attempting to put his foot down on what he believes can be done with rock and roll. He's 29, which is relatively very young. He put it all on the line and you can feel it coming through the song. If you listen to it with sensitive ears, that it's not just the song that's full tilt. Freddie Mercury and his band are full tilt. Like, this is it. This is their life's work. Right. Like, how much of a vision was there from the very beginning? Well, so I believe he had the the ballad, the verse, basically. He had that since the beginning of Queen. And he would oftentimes play it. It was well known to the band. Okay. He knew that he wanted more from it. He didn't know how to do it. He didn't know he was going to have to take an opera. So once he had a few other parts of the song, like I think the intro, he was able to figure out that he could blend those. He then had a ramp where he said, 
I wonder how many other parts I can paste together on this. Right. Which is why even in the studio, when they started recording the song, they only had maybe three legs out of the eight for the operatic section. Probably once he had the title Bohemian Rhapsody, he figured, okay, we're going to be covering topics of murder, nihilism, emotional excessives, and we're just going to wrap it into something that climaxes where it's just this cathartic moment. And I think the reflective coda at the end was the very last thing where he said, how do we end this thing? Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. That reflective coda is pretty uh, complex as well. There's all kinds of stuff going on. There's uh, uneven bars. So there's two bars, four bars, four bars, then one bar. The one bar being any way the wind blows. That's one bar unto itself. There's tempo searching going on. The tempo's rising and then falling. They're changing the key signature. So like the chords of that whole last section are A minor, E minor, nothing really matters. Anyone can see. Nothing really matters. That's him going A minor, E minor, A minor, E minor, A minor, E minor, and then A minor, F minor. Might have been my first uh, childhood experience of nihilism. Hey, me too. (laughs) You know? My second was uh, Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's when I actually figured out what the word was. Yeah, yeah. So he goes A minor to F minor. And then nothing really matters to me. They got the minor to major, which we've discussed many times on the show. Comes out of the F minor and goes to F major 7. And then ends on C. If you're familiar with the song, you know that there's some piano rolls in there. And he ultimately ends up in the key of D. So just to give you a sense of where all the different key changes are. It starts in the key of E minor. The verse is the key of G. The chorus is the key of C. The operatic section is in the key of F sharp. The climax is in the key of C. The reflective coda is A minor. And then it ends on the key of D. So it's moving up and down in the chord structure a lot by circle of fifths to get them around all the different chord changes. But you go up one layer of abstraction, you realize that the key signature itself is also moving around into circle of fifths from A minor to a D. I've mentioned before when great composers, like what's the song that we did at 1986, If You Leave, changing key signatures up and down, up and down. And at the very end, it goes A, B, C. The key signature, just like the way that he's hitting the different melody notes inside the chords, he's hitting all the different notes. They're also in the key signature, moving it all the way through the notes of the scale. I do a lot of film deconstruction too. This stuff is widely used. A tour filmmaking is when you're using everything in the scene, Meisen scene, you're using everything to tell the story to make it feel more real. Well, Freddie Mercury is not just using lyrics. He's not just using sound. He's also using music theory to couch this complex song and have it move around the different tonalities of the chord structure, not just using chords, but also using key signature. Did he have a great education in that? I I saw the movie seemed a little uh, zoomed out. A little oversimplified. Yeah. I don't feel like I got to know him too well. I mean, was he just a prodigy or did he have music theory training at all? I don't think he was a prodigy. He did have some music training, not necessarily like he went to school for it. But, you know, at this point, you're talking 71, 72, that he's kind of finding his music legs. They released their first album in 73. During those first few years, like us, like any band that comes after the Beatles, when you study the Beatles, you essentially get the bones of music theory. You might not understand the terminology, but you can still tell that when the Beatles change key signatures, that it has a certain effect on the mind. 
And so you just kind of employ it into your own songwriting. Between the Beatles and Elton John, who was on the piano, and like most piano men, they're able to change key signatures relatively very easily. I don't know why that is. There's probably a reason why pianists can change key signature better than on guitar. You do just tend to find transitions that you wouldn't have thought to do on the guitar neck. Yeah, like on a guitar neck, you tend to get locked into looking at circle of fifths and looking at boxes, always moving in very conventional ways. But on a piano, you can move up to those black keys pretty easily and find some notes to make it work. And uh, yeah, I'd say in general, what a piano is, it's, it's, it lends itself to more classical or jazz, which is just far more non-conventional than pop music, which tends to be highly, highly, highly overused chord patterns probably explains why uh, Freddie Mercury was able to compose a song like this. It didn't come down to music theory. It came down to him playing on piano. And just like Ellen John, just lends itself to going more places and getting more creative. So let's move over to the other side of the fence with November Rain. When I look into your eyes, I can see a love restrained. We got a basic chord structure here. F, D, minor, C. November Rain is also only three acts, but it's four chapters. It's a verse, a middle eight, a solo, and a coda, but it's five legs. So earlier you were describing it as a pre-chorus and a bridge. Well, I would say that the middle eight is actually just two separate legs. So when you think about, do you need some time on your own? Do you need some time all alone? That's the first leg. The second leg of the middle eight. E minor. I know it's hard to heal a broken heart. That's right. When even friends seem out to harm you. So that's just the second leg. And the reason why I break them up is because to call something a pre-chorus and to call something a bridge in a song where it's not really repeating itself because these parts are more or less a middle section. Yeah. It's just more appropriate to call them leg one and leg two. And you could call it a middle, you could call it a pre-chorus, you can call it a bridge. For the sake of this discussion, I think it's just better vernacular to call it a second chapter. They use the parts sparingly. The reason it's long is that there's a lot of parts. There's guitar solos, and the verses just take a long time. They're just airy, wide verses. So it's got a verse one, verse two, then it gets into middle eight, leg one, middle eight, leg two, goes to a solo comes back to a middle eight, leg one, goes back to another solo, comes out to verse three, and then the coda. They repeat middle eight, leg one twice. They don't do leg two twice. Just to put all that into the chapter framework, the first chapter is the verse sections. The second chapter is the middle eight sections. The third chapter is the solo sections because the solos take quite a long time. I give them an entire chapter because when I think of November Rain, when it came out, you think of slash. I think of slash. Slash in the field. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've got a theory about that too. I, you know how guitar solos really went out of vogue. Oh yeah, this was the last great guitar solo of all time. Yeah, and and I thought about why. I mean, obviously, there's a lot to do with grunge and alternative and big solos just aren't cool. But this was also the peak, though. Slash's solos are so good. Right. And so melodic that you go, well, if some guy comes along later and tries to do a big giant rock solo and doesn't do it as good as November Rain, (laughs) then we don't need you. We don't want you. Right. Slash put us all out of business. Exactly. He closed the (laughs) door on that. And of course, Slash in the coda is also the center of attention by standing on top of the piano. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he he knew how to make himself seen. (laughs) So there's basically five legs. The first leg is the verse. 
The second leg is nothing lasts forever and we both know hearts can change. You could call this a refrain as well, but I'm calling it the second leg for the purpose of this framework. And that's D minor G C. By the time you get to that middle eight leg one, that's just F to G, F to G back and forth. Middle eight leg two is the E minor to F to C and E minor to F to D minor. Then you get into the third verse. By the time you get to the end, the beginning of the fourth chapter, you get this chord sequence, C, G, F, E flat, A flat, B flat, C. Or to put that in terms of the numbers, it's root five, four, flat three, flat six, seven, eight. Similar to Bohemian Rhapsody, similar to If You Leave, we have the chords marching down and then marching up. So root, five, four, three, six, seven, eight. I don't think of Axel as being a particularly clever music theorist. However, he knew what he was getting himself into here. And I think he wanted a coda that appropriately marched up and down the different notes. Everybody needs somebody. You're not the only one. You're not the only one. Let's get those vocals kind of like that monster produced vocal. You you like those monster vocals. Those monster vocals. And again, uh, this was mentioned in a previous episode, but monster vocals are when you're doing all the different octaves. So he's got E1 in there, E2, E3, E4, and E5. Nobody does five octaves. Except for Axel. (laughs) And and Mariah Carey. Well, she doesn't do them all at the same time. I know, I know. Axel does them all (laughs) at the same time. So November Rain is an interesting song. Let's just zoom out and look at the architecture here. The verse has two legs. The solo has two legs. You know, they got the first solo. Then it comes back to the middle eight. Then they go out to another solo. The middle eight has two legs. Everybody needs some time, and I know it's hard to keep an open heart. That's the second leg. And the entire song, I would say, is two legs. It's got the first part and then the coda. After the song ends, you got the second song. So this song is operating with two legs in every single section. And as a whole, the song is two legs. When you begin to look at music, there's a lot of architecture there, if you can find it. A lot of that is speaking directly to you even a layman listener, you might not be able to put words to this stuff, but you know that this is a heavily architected song, as well as the music videos, highly architected. There's a whole story in there of him getting married, and then she commits suicide, and he goes to the grave and cries his eyes out. And Stephanie Seymour? Yeah, that is her name. Yep. Uh, the themes being here, fragility, weariness, humility, contemplativeness, as opposed to Bohemian Rhapsody, which was more fatalistic fantasy. We've been calling it the Layla, where you append a song to the end of the song. Right. That's what Guns N' Roses called it. However, the Beatles invented it. You know I have to go there. Hello, goodbye. Hey, la. Hey, hey, lo, ha. That's the first song to do it. Uh, something similar on the White Album. Well, White Album's after Hello, Goodbye. Uh, uh, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. I'm losing my, I'm losing my timelines. Cause, you're uh, going crazy. I'm going nuts. Hello, goodbye was uh, Magical Mystery era. Even yeah, sorry. Good. Paradise City does it. Rocket Queen does it. Patience does it. Locomotive does it. A Strange does it. So Guns N' Roses got a good five songs that do the Layla thing, which is really the Hello Goodbye thing. Mike Clink produced this. I don't think it's produced particularly well if you listen to it critically it's getting the job done i've never been impressed with their piano sound it sounds like a casio keyboard i agree and did you notice maybe the third chord of the whole song is just 
out of time. Right at the beginning, just obvious. Yeah. Out of time chord. Maybe they kept it because they thought like. Yeah, I think that they were going for a live sound to a certain extent. They did not want it overly polished. Well. (laughs) You're not happy about it. But to your point, the the keys aren't produced very well at the beginning. Um, It gets better when you more strings come in and it's a little bit drowned out. But uh, Mm -hmm. it it sounds cheap at the beginning. The symphonic sounds sound kind of like synthesizers, even though they're actual strings. Mm -hmm. The, The swooshes are meant to sound kind of cool, but they're kind of over the top. The original mixes for all of Usual Illusions were scrapped, and they took Mike Klink out of it, and they brought in Bill Price of uh, Sex Pistols fame. So they brought in a punk producer to produce this album, which is kind of operatic rock, and that might have something to do with the fact that it sounds disjointed. This song relies a lot on background chorus singers going, uh, ah, <laughs> a lot of that. There's a lot of chorus pedals, which I, I find extremely dated on the, the bass guitar. Right. Such a 1991, 1992 sound. The guitar solo mixing is perfect. Slash doesn't just play great solos. The effects he gets, especially on the November Rain solo in the middle, it almost sounds like a violin. It's so thick and supported. Towards the end of the song, they bring in all these raining flutes, which is kind of a cool effect. So I, I give it props for that. Got the cool cutting violins in there. Junt, 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 you know, big power chord from Axel. Sure. Let me just kind of wrap some of this up. This is opera rock. It started with, I would say, Rocky Horror Picture Show in 73. The play, Meatloaf was in that. He's kind of the father to me of operatic rock. Now, of course, there's stuff upstream from him. Everything from the Beatles to Led Zeppelin to Aerosmith and whatever else. After Bohemian Rhapsody comes along, there's all kinds of acts who want in on this operatic rock. And eight years later, Axel's writing this stuff with his friend Slash. You got Motley Crue, Metallica. All these different bands are coming out trying to do their version of Bohemian Rhapsody or operatic rock. And then, like you say, it all kind of dies right in 1992 with Slash out in the field. <laughs> Next thing you know, alternative rock takes over everything. And Axel knew it. You sent me something in a text message with Axel basically talking about Kurt Cobain and, you know, typical Axel. I just think Kurt Cobain thinks he's so cool. And hey, if you're going to be that cool, the rest of us can't be cool. And it was- Well, you didn't think there was some thoughtfulness to what Axel had to say? Definitely, definitely. For all the differences between 80s rock and hair metal, which Guns N' Roses is part of and also not part of. They're the one band that made it out of that cesspool. Grunge comes along and just levels the whole playing field. But to me, like Cobain and Axel are, they're cut from the same cloth for all the differences, which are, there's plenty of differences. Right. You're still talking about two fairly bright intellectual guys that took different paths. They even look the same. Yeah, they do. They look like they brothers from different mothers. And I think that's why they clashed. You know, there was some thing where they got into it at the MTV award. It was all Courtney Love, man. She was Yoko. <laughs> okay, you immediately got to blame Courtney. <laughs> oh, my power chord music's better than your power chord music. And my rock ethos is better. I mean, just saying now that there's been 30 years and there's been time to reflect, I can like both. Right. There's a total culture difference, though, because, you know, alternative rock, at least at the very beginning, was seen as anti-meathead music. Right. Whereas Guns N' Roses was meathead. Was meathead music. That was the the thing I sent you was Axel on stage talking about, listen, when we were coming out, they weren't playing us on the radio. They were the alternative, yeah. Nirvana 
and grunge then became the mainstream. So you know what I think it comes down to? <laughs> it always comes down to Hit Parade magazine. Oh yeah, and what was the other one? Circus. All the ones he called out in that song yeah. <laughs> in the ring. <laughs> Get in the ring, and they did have some power. It's it's almost hard for people to imagine if you didn't live through it. But those music magazines held a lot of power. There was no internet, right. so when you wanted to learn about music or bands, you'd open up Rolling Stone, Hit Parade, Circus. What you read about in those magazines was all there was to say about it. There was no right. internet 2.0 where there was a comment section. And Axel just hated the fact that he felt like he was sidelined after everything he'd worked for. He probably thought he had 10 years left in his career. And next thing you know, it's all gone because Seattle music scene has taken over. Yeah, but I don't know if that's ultimately what killed Guns N' Roses. I, I don't know. I, it did. I, I think didn't. it was turmoil within the band and the fact that they just didn't have another great album in them at that moment. And they put out the spaghetti incident. They made a lot of mistakes i certainly would have bought a good guns and roses album in 1994 alongside buying in utero so so to me like back to to the main point was i understand the meathead argument thing and then cobain basically saying oh we don't want meatheads as fans we don't want this jock culture of course they they end up showing up at the shows as well and that's what that one song is about he's the one that likes all the pretty songs and he likes to sing along my my point being, I think they were both really, really smart guys. Cobain and uh, Axel were sort of of a level that we don't, I don't know if we see now. We definitely don't see it anymore. Not in any genre of art. You had the garage band explosion of the 60s and you had the garage band explosion of the 90s. And I would throw Guns N' Roses in there too. That's it. I mean, that's really the heart of music. It's all over. It's all over. <laughs> we're going to have a special episode. It's going to be the best song in history, according to me. Uh, it's actually a trilogy. Anytime someone asks me what's the best song ever written, I say, crying, crazy, amazing. <laughs> the trilogy from Get a Grip by Aerosmith. Oh, and I always throw in, e even though I'm already breaking the rules by citing a trilogy as being the best song of all time, I also throw in Living on the Edge just to make it that much more complicated because it's really a quadrology, both in video and in terms of how the songs are constructed. It's opera rock, it's hard rock, it's everything. It's the best song ever written. And with that said, we'll leave you to next month. Leave us some ratings, leave us some reviews, and uh, tell us how much we stink or tell us how good we are. Ryan can handle it. Mm -hmm, I can't. I'm very sensitive. <laughs> I, by the way, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention this man's name at least once before what? ending. I don't think we mentioned Brian May once. And uh. You know, the solo in Bohemian Rhapsody is one of my favorite of all time. And it's so crucial that he got that right, that I'll put that as a predecessor to Slash's uh, genius. Upstream from Slash, you're right. And I saw Queen when they're doing their Adam Lambert tour. This was probably a year and a half ago in Nashville. And I, I didn't know what to expect with the, with the different singer and everything, but uh, it was awesome. But Brian May is in his 70s and he's just one of the best guitarists ever. I didn't really yeah, realize that. And a good that. personality. Yeah, and I didn't really realize that until I saw him live. Good, 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 good call. All right. We'll leave you to July. Have a great one.